Welcome to the Career Pod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. Your host for today's episode is our founder and CEO, Mr. Fred Studley. Today, Fred is talking with Rudy Friedrich. He's a law enforcement professional. He's an Army vet who had his service time split between Hawaii and the Berlin Wall in the 1970s. He moved from the Army and joined the U.S. Marshals Service, where he's responsible for judiciary security. That's, that is addressing the security infrastructures of courts, courthouses, judges, district attorneys, etc. He was also heavily involved in witness security, suspect and fugitive apprehension, and a number of other U.S. Marshal services, which he will explain during the course of the conversation. He has other interesting insights on the tools of law enforcement, the human intelligence and intuition skills of law enforcement professionals, and the newly emerging technology tools and data sharing infrastructures that they can draw on. He also has some insights and comments on the vast array of law enforcement and security agencies in the United States and their interagency coordination, jurisdictions, and functioning. Finally, in the latter part of his career, he did some work overseas on behalf of the United States and their various outreach efforts regarding the rule of law, democracy, and legal and security infrastructures. He advised other countries, primarily in Eastern Europe, on how to establish security infrastructures for their courthouses, judges, attorneys, and other people involved in law enforcement and the rule of law abroad. He's very articulate and very insightful about what it takes for a career dedicated to law enforcement. It's a very special episode with a deep look into a fairly unknown element of the U.S. law enforcement infrastructure. Here's Fred and Rudy. Thank you. Hello, my name is Fred Studley, and I'm your host for today. Uh, Rudy, uh, good to have you on Career Podcast. Good morning, Fred, and I'm uh, glad to be here. Good. Now, Rudy's got an extensive career in uh, a lot of particular agencies. He, he has over 42 years combined experience in federal law enforcement, security, and U.S. military. So right off the bat, uh, an appropriate phrase is, uh, I thank you for your service, and we all do, so a lot of it. Uh, well, thank you very much, sir. In, in terms of, why don't we start in the beginning? Uh, where did you grow up, and uh, what kind of school did you have, and what were the early influences that led you to this uh, uh, lengthy career in uh, you know, law enforcement and, and military? Uh, so where, where did it all begin, Rudy? Okay, well, I was born in the Bronx in 1954. Like many folks, I don't have a recollection of uh, the specifics of many of the early years, but uh, I do know that my father worked for the railroad and or an insurance company, so we lived the first couple of years of my life in other places like Buffalo, Watertown, Cincinnati, and we wound up in uh, Peekskill for a couple of years. Um, so I wound up back in the Bronx uh, from about the time I was in the second grade until shortly after my 18th birthday. Um, growing up in the Bronx in a housing project uh, was challenging for a person like me. And I had decided early on that uh, I needed to get out of there. 
And so for me, the U.S. Army was something I had already known for some years I was going to join because that was my out. Now, I did give college a try, two days at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, but I basically got up in the middle of the class and uh, went and joined the Army like I knew I had wanted to do. So that's how I wound up in the United States Army. Okay. And your, your first uh, uh, duty, I guess, we had a pretty good assignment. You were in... Uh... Hawaii? Was that where you started your career? Well, when I joined the Army, I enlisted specifically for Hawaii, four years, infantry, and a $1,500 cash bonus. Now, $1,500 was a lot of money to me at the time, so I was signing away years without really thinking about what I was doing. Um, uh, Hawaii was a, a great duty station. My first major influence in life I met there, a sergeant by the name of Bob Rassler. Now, he was a LERP in Vietnam, that stands for Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol. And his job was to be part of a six-man team and be inserted deep into enemy territory and conduct reconnaissance missions, which often led to his six-man team being chased by the enemy in the amount of hundreds of them trying to hunt them down. So he took me under his wing and he taught me a lot of uh, small unit and individual tactics and stealth type things, which became very useful later in life. Um, so that was my first duty station, Hawaii. I went on leave and I came back in 74 to Hawaii and there was a, a recruiting team from Germany, which basically if you waived your contract for, for uh, Hawaii, they would guarantee you any assignment in Germany. So I selected the Berlin Brigade and that's how I wound up being in Berlin, Germany when the war was up between 1974 and 1977. So you found yourself in Germany. Uh, that was a hot spot uh, during that period of time, I suspect, right? In terms of uh, well, it was the you know it was the heart of the Cold War, right? And um, part of my job uh, duties in the initial year I was there involved several things that I that were pretty cool for for someone like me. Um, I was in my battalion's recon platoon, and uh, that meant that we were the entity responsible for conducting the West Berlin Wall Patrol. So we would patrol the perimeter of the wall in a machine gun mounted Jeep, 24-7, um, 365, basically. But even more interesting was what was known as the East Berlin Ground Reconnaissance Patrols. At that time, 24-7, 365, the United States Army had a vehicle inside of East Berlin, driving around, doing primarily two things. The first was practicing access rights. And the second was looking for indicators of hostility. You may recall that when the war went up back in 1961, it was a total surprise to people, even though there were really indicators in advance that uh, should have uh, made clear that something big like that was about to happen. So, um, those were some of my early duties in Berlin. So um, if I could just interject a question here, Rudy. So you were in East Berlin, uh, and you were you, was it a legitimate uh, passageway there that you, part of the, the treaty or the, the understanding was you had access to that side of the wall? Well, absolutely. We traveled in an official vehicle in military uniform. Um, as you know, the, uh, the city of Berlin was divided among the four powers, the Soviets, French, British, and Americans. Now, the East Germans would have liked to have 
um, dominated the goings on in East Berlin, but we, the United States, stuck to the four powers agreement and each power had access to each other's sector basically whenever they wanted. But you had to be, if you were to do that type of activity, you had to be in an official vehicle and in uniform. Now, uh, up until, you know, you were there for, you know, three years, I believe, uh, in a, you know, fairly tense environment, uh, anything you can speak to that uh, happened or was there, you know, 365, you know, uh, seven days a week, just full of tension and preparedness for something to happen? Did anything happen? Uh, nothing uh Nothing extraordinary. My my greatest personal memory of tension was uh, during one of these patrols about halfway through. It was the summer. It was hot. And since I spoke German, which I, by the way, I told myself German once I got to Berlin, given my name, I thought it was a smart move to make. I, um, I was selected to go into this Kneipe. It's a German for a neighborhood pub to go get us a couple of sodas. So I got out of the car. I walked into this place, and as soon as I stepped in, the din went to total silence. And there in the back of the bar was about 10 East German soldiers uh, enjoying their Sunday off, uh, pounding beers. And you could just cut the tension with a knife. But um, I did my best to look like a Clint Eastwood and <laughs> be as calm and composed as I could be, get my sodas and uh, walk out of there. Um, that, that's my greatest personal memory of, uh, of detention there. Yeah. And I guess that, that goes to throughout your uh, career, uh, the discipline you need to have in pretty much every one of your assignments is key. Uh, it's not meant to be a place for a cowboy uh, because you really have to be in control, uh, be ready, but you have a high level of discipline. Would you agree that discipline is critical? Well, I hadn't thought about it as much as you just did now, but yes, absolutely. Uh, cowboys get themselves in trouble, get their agencies in trouble, and in certain parts, of, you know, and internationally, they can get their countries in trouble. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay. And then you uh, last assignment was uh, coming back home. I guess you you were you were in a training capacity. Was that uh, back in West Point, or were you just training uh, West Point cadets? Well, no. My last year I was actually assigned to the 101st Airborne Division in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Um, my actual job was I was the acting. I was the platoon sergeant and acting field platoon leader for my battalion's recon platoon. It just so happened that during the summer of 1978, my uh, company was tasked with going to West Point to support the training of West Point cadets, generally um, the incoming class. So uh, that's how I spent my final summer and how I wound up in West Point. Okay. And in, in it... In 1978, you decided or, or you did leave the service and you went to another agency. What was the decision tree like? Why did you decide uh, you know, to leave then and not uh, make it a, a lifelong career? Well, by 1978, I had been in six years and 21 days to be quite exact. And I, I had realized that I never intended to spend my life in the military. I could have easily done so. 
I was offered the opportunity to go into special forces, but I just felt like getting out and leading a civilian life was the way to go. Now, my next job, which obviously I'll be talking about, was in the United States Marshal Service. But quite honestly, I sort of just fell into that. The week before I got out of the Army, they made me go to classes telling me what all my benefits and rights were across the board. And one of them was any federal civil service test that was given while I was in, as long as I was qualified for it, they had to give me once I got out. So I signed up for a bunch of tests, um, and Deputy U.S. Marshal was one of them. I scored very well, five veterans points added on top of that. And uh, that's how I wound up in my uh, next career. Because as a kid, growing up in the projects, I probably ran from the police more than anything else. Just, you know, doing mischievous stuff. Nothing serious. But... Right. Well, you know, you fell into this. We'll talk a little bit later about, you know, good luck and bad luck and things like that. Uh, did, you, did you have a mentor that kind of pushed you towards the marshal services? Or... Or no, I, I literally just called the Federal Job Information Center, and they they ran down the list of every test that was given between 1972 and 1978, and I picked like five or six that I that I took the test for. Okay, uh, I had in my civics uh, lesson I would have failed because I I really didn't know that much about the United States Marshal Service. Uh, and why don't you tell the listeners what, because there's the FBI, there's ATF, there's any number of other agencies, uh, ICE, whatever. What's the, the charter for United States Marshal Service? What, what is their, who do they report to and what typically is their task? Well, that requires a little bit of explanation to truly understand what the nature of the United States Marshal is all about. Uh, the, the, the Office of United States Marshal was created back in 1789 with the passage of what's known as the First Judiciary Act. At, at that time, a United States Marshal was appointed for each of the 13 federal judicial, dist judicial districts, which represented one for each colony. And the because the... the it was realized that in order to have a court system, you also had to have a court system that had some teeth, some enforcement capability. And that was why the position of the United States Marshal was created. So from 1789 until the present, the United States Marshal uh, Office has been responsible for supporting the federal judiciary across a range of, of uh, job programs. Um, yeah, why don't you go a little deeper and, and have it go into what your role was. You, you, you had a lot of different assignments over your 20-plus years there. Uh, why don't you take us through a couple of the assignments? It doesn't have to be uh, all of them, but give us a flavor of the type of work that you did. Sure. Uh, what, I, what I was trying to lead up to in my last uh, statement was that over the course of these 200 years plus the the duties of, of the United States Marshal have changed in many respects and yet stayed the same also in many respects. So, so excuse me. Um, at, the at the present time, the primary duties that the Marshal Service is most known for 
uh, our fugitive apprehensions and uh, the witness security program, the protection of the court system, the physical protection of courthouses, the protection of judicial officials, that could be judges, United States attorneys, even federal public defenders and, and probation officers come of the Marshal Service protected bailiwick. And since the, since even actually before 2000, because uh, that, that was when we, the agency was tasked with going down to Columbia and uh, conducting a security enhancement mission down there, the Marshal Service has been heavily involved in, in international training programs. We have been to Iraq, Colombia, Afghanistan, Bosnia, basically just about everywhere. Um, so again, some of the duties of the United States Marshal's Office have been the same since 1789, executing the court's writs, which might be service of process, court orders, arrest warrants, search warrants. And some of them are have morphed over time to some of the things that we're, we do now, fugitive task forces that work uh, extensively with state and local police officers, uh, departments to, uh, to apprehend fugitives in their jurisdictions. The witness security program was something that came to the Marshal Service in 1970 when the Organized Crime Control Act was passed. And these international training missions, which uh, we pretty much started doing in the late 90s. Why don't you talk about maybe you were involved in supporting uh, court systems and in part of the nation building initiatives in the Middle East and Iraq and everything. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your role there? And well, in the beginning, it was primarily hands-on activities. I started out as a deputy U.S. Marshal in New York City. And as, the, as a basic deputy U.S. Marshal, my primary duties were to uh, go out on the streets and arrest fugitives, to bring prisoners to court. And in New York, most of these court proceedings were, were very high profile, mafia trials, Brinks armored car robbery case, spy cases, things like that. Um, and I did a lot of witness security work, but I did it at the, at the grunt level. I was the person who actually would produce witnesses like uh, Jimmy the Weasel Fradiano or Henry Hill for appearances that they needed to make. So you had to apprehend them, basically. Well, not I didn't apprehend the witnesses. I oh, apprehended no, fugitives. Okay. I went out on the street and tracked people down and uh, and took them into custody. Yeah. You know, the Marshal Service inherited the fugitive program from the FBI in 1979, and frankly, nobody thought we would be as successful as we were. But we were we were highly successful, and uh, that's why it's one of the staples of the Marshal Services. Uh, activities this uh, today. Yeah, and and it it for what might seem to be a fairly straightforward task, it, it's fraught with some danger, right? I mean, well, as an old timer once told me, uh, the three most dangerous words in the English language are "you're under arrest," and you should never utter those words unless you're totally prepared all the way around for the response that the individual can make. So I wound up in Miami uh, from New York City. I went down to Miami initially as a, a witness security specialist. So I 
I'm actually somebody who did most of the jobs in the entire in the marshal service at one point or uh, in time or another. So I spent a year in the witness, uh, actually implementing the witness security program down in Miami. And Miami was a hotbed in the uh, mid '80s, as as you well know. So some of the hottest uh, witnesses and uh, trials in the country were taking place there. And that's how I came across people like uh, Barry Seal. Um, right, I did that for a year, and then I wound up back doing uh, what we call enforcement work, which again is uh, fugitive warrants on the street. And I spent three months doing that. Doesn't seem like a lot of time. Did manage to nail a, a, a marshal service top fifteen fugitive during that period of time, where I closed the case on on him. Uh, and that's when I got promoted to management, which is a position of supervisory deputy. And from that point on, you start becoming less hands-on and more the management of the people and the programs that lead, uh, that lead to the hands-on activities. Yeah. Well, let's go back in time. Let's uh, spend a little bit of time about your hands-on role uh, that you had. Uh, when you found when you apprehended that top fifteen uh, fugitive, uh, just in general, uh, maybe just briefly, what were the the keys to that apprehension? What uh, was it? Just a lot of street work, a lot of uh, phone calls, a lot of discussions with uh, you know potential leads to him or her. Would well, actually, it was a case that the district had had for quite some time. Um, that I then inherited, which means a lot of work was already done and I was able to build upon the work that had already been done. Now, uh, just to be clear again, I did not personally apprehend the fugitive because he was located in Cincinnati, Ohio, but I wound up doing an interview in a travel office and there was something about the behavior of one of the women in that office that led me to believe she was in contact with the wife of the person we were looking for. It was just a gut feeling from watching the people in the office. And I was able to take that bit of information, locate the wife, and that led us to locating the fugitive in Cincinnati, Ohio. And, and we actually had a team of marshals from Brooklyn descend upon Cincinnati to make the arrest because the Cincinnati office didn't have enough manpower. Yeah, you, you bring up an interesting point that we're hearing from other people and pretty much all the occupational groups. The emergence of technology is very helpful, you know, databases, and you can access a lot of information, as you did, no doubt, in this situation. But there is that intuition uh, or the, the importance of the personal factor. And, you know, that was kind of a gut call and... and you know, you probably had enough experiences to, you know, just be able to read people and their discomfort or, or whatever. So I guess it, it's it's both. The, the job hasn't gone so technical that that's not a, a useful skill, or has it? It's The job has had a lot of technological advances. The Marshal Service has one of the premier... Um, technical operations units in, in the country. They were recently involved in working at the Austin bomber case in Texas. They were the ones sorting through a lot of the cell phone 
cell phone tower records and trying to put together the story. Um, so there is that aspect uh, of technological advances. But when it comes to looking for people, I have found that it's always the case that somebody, some human being knows where the person you're looking for is. And the approaches that have always worked the best for me personally were using this, this, these people that know where the fugitive is, either by hook or by crook, by interview or by, by scam, um, to get them to divulge the whereabouts of the person we're looking for. I found that that works as well, if not better, than all of the sophisticated electronic and technical um, measures that are, that, that are out there. Uh, you mentioned Barry Seal. I did see the Tom Cruise movie. I forget the name of it. Uh, I don't know if it rings a bell with you, but he was portrayed in that movie. He was Tom Cruise, or Tom Cruise was him. And uh, I guess you were involved in the management of him. Uh, uh, was that part of one of these task force that you were involved in? Well, Barry Seal, it's, it's no secret. He was in the witness protection program at one time in Miami. So that's how I came across uh, knowing him. Now, I really can't say very much about the mechanics of the witness security program. Sure. But um, I will say this. The movie was American Made. That was the name of the movie. Yeah. And I would say, based on what I know of, of the Barry Seal story, that that movie was probably 80% uh, Hollywood revisionist, um, revisionism. Right. Entertaining, but not really on the money. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was comical. I think you pointed out that uh, the real-life Barry Seal didn't look anything like Tom Cruise, right? Well, if you got on the Internet and saw pictures of Barry Seal, you'd see that he was quite overweight, and yeah. Tom Cruise is not exactly that. Right. But I saw Tom Cruise in another movie, Jack Reacher, and in the books, Jack Reacher is like six foot six, two hundred and sixty pounds of muscle, <laughs> and I never thought Tom Cruise could pull that off, but he did. He did. <laughs> oh, thanks to stuntmen and everything else, and and again, because of your years of experience, you've been involved in in so many threats, whether it be, you know, motorcycle gangs, Aryan Brotherhood, uh, obviously the Colombian drug uh, traffickers. So you certainly got, have had breadth of exposure to, uh, as I said, a lot of different threats. Uh, so that, that, that must have been very interesting. And then, well, go ahead. Yeah, we, we have, we're part of the Marshal Service's duties is to provide court security for high threat trials. And so I've been involved in putting together the security operations for trials such as the outlaw motorcycle gang in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, that's the best example I can come up with. He had six really hardcore bikers in custody who um, required extensive security management in order to make sure the trial went off without a hitch and, mm. and uh, you know, there were no, no incidents. Yeah, it is amazing that in my lifetime, I think I've, I, I have a vague recollection of maybe three judges that fell victim to violence, and I can't think of 
any full assaults on uh, courthouses. Uh, I'm sure you've got chapter and verse, but... Uh, well, in 1970 in California, you may recall, there was an incident in a courtroom where where um, the radicals took over a courtroom and kidnapped a judge, some jurors, and uh, a prosecutor from the courtroom in the middle of the trial. And the resulting shootout, the judge died, a juror was shot and wounded, and the prosecutor was paralyzed. That was the day when court security in the United States took a leap, a major leap forward in its in its seriousness. Prior to that, you could go into a courthouse, and there pretty much would not be a magnetometer, a metal detector, or an X-ray machine at the entrance. That changed everything. Well, the Marshal Service it, it, it immediately started implementing higher security measures in their for their court facilities. Um, and we, over the years, have had three federal judges killed um, as a consequence of, of their duties as a judge, and each one of them was killed at their residence. So securing the courthouse pushed the problem outside of the courthouse. In a way, you saw that yesterday in the YouTube uh, attack scenario. As I understand it, the the woman uh, who was the shooter um, was shooting uh, employees of YouTube who were sitting outside the building having lunch. So even if the building is secured, if the exterior of the building is not, that's where the problem will be pushed to. So we haven't had any incidents, uh, almost no incidents, inside of courthouses that have affected judges because the problem has been moved outside the courthouse. Yeah, yeah. They'll go for the soft targets every time. Uh, how about, you know, uh, I have no expertise. I watch the same movies we all do, and there's always the dialogue in movies about interagency, you know, confusion, competition uh, that can get in the way of effectiveness. Is that overblown uh, or... You know, does it really happen quite often? My experience has been that, yes, there are some turf control issues because each agency has responsibilities that they don't want to sacrifice uh, to another agency. And I'll give you sort of a crazy example, but it, it personally affected me. One day in Fort Lauderdale, U.S. Customs Service officers appeared at my front counter with a United States Parole Commission warrant in hand. Now, I have no idea how they got that warrant because those things are supposed to be delivered directly to the United States Marshal's office. And they wanted to know if it would be okay for them, since they worked out in Collier County on the other side of Florida from Miami, to make the arrest in the following morning. Now, if all I cared about was the person being taken into custody, I would have said, yeah, sure. But I couldn't let some other agency execute the marshal services functions you know we had just gotten this fugitive program and it was something that was going to make the marshal services star shine brighter so i said uh no you can be there tomorrow when we drive over there to make the arrest and so i drove two hours one way and two hours back uh, just to make the arrest because it was our job to do so so yeah, you know, these these turf issues can appear, but um, 
that's just a, a micro level incident that I can think of uh, that personally affected me. Uh, but you know, like one of the things you often hear is criticism of certain federal agencies coming in, taking credit for all the work that was done by everybody else. You can pe- probably picture which agency I'm talking about. And I never found that to be true. Every agent I ever met from this particularly well-known agency was a professional. I never, ever had a problem with them. Uh, so some things are overhyped. Some things are the general topic, um, such as interagency um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, rivalry, perfect word. Uh, or, or, you know, in my case, just not letting another agency do our job for us. And I did that several times. Now, if I might add, though, the Marshal Service has a reputation, and I personally assisted in maintaining it, of being um, over, being very cooperative with state and local law enforcement agencies. And what I mean by that is, and I've done this several times. If I'm out on the street making an arrest of a fugitive and the state and the locals are helping us out in any shape, form, or manner, when we make the arrest, I would let one of the local or state officers be the arresting officer. He or she would be the one to take the person um, down to their police station and, and basically take credit for the arrest. And, and afterwards, we would arrange for the transition of custody, the federal custody, because the warrant was based on a federal arrest warrant. But those things would, would go a long way for you and for the agency in the long run by, by having that type of relationship with the locals, not caring about who got the credit when it came to dealing with them. Did you, uh, you had a mentor earlier when you were in the service, uh, in your time with the marshal service, did you benefit from having a mentor? Well, uh, the, the word mentor is kind of hard to apply in my career in the marshal service. When I started working for the marshal service in New York city in 1980, <clears throat> It was only seven years after the position of deputy U.S. Marshal had become a civil service position. So prior to that, the position was generally filled by the marshal, the head of the district, and was almost inevitably retired NYPD cops that he had worked with over the years. Um, So, you know, I, I don't want to sound disparaging or anything, but when I walked into that office in New York City, and the, the, most of the people that were there were not people who were going to be mentors to me in the modern United States Marshal Service. I was lucky to have one guy by the name of Mike Rickwich who was my age and had been on the job for like five or six years already. And I was able to learn quite a lot from him about things. But there just wasn't really a whole lot in the way of mentorship um, in the rest of the office, and I could tell you some stories that just would not be flattering, so I won't tell you okay. them. What was the best part of the job, uh, if you look back at it, the thing that gave you the most satisfaction? What type of responsibility or tasks typically would make you satisfied? Well, for me, the fugitive apprehension was. Um, there are some cases where you just... You know, we call them door kicker cases. 
you know where the person is and you just show up at, you know, a dark hundred in the morning and take the person into custody. And then there are other ones where you have to really dig and dig and push and prod and scheme and scam to make this person bubble to the surface to where they can be apprehended. I loved working those types of cases because they were hard and they were very rewarding when you were able to nab the person. Because if you hadn't done the things you did, they would still probably be a fugitive to this day. And also, it was kind of like uh, the ultimate game of hide-and-seek. We all loved hide-and-seek as a kid. Well, this is hide-and-seek in which if you make a mistake, you might get killed. So there was a little bit of of adrenaline flowing, real adrenaline flowing while playing this game of hide-and-seek. And real adrenaline, if I might diverge for a moment, um, one of the things I see is uh, sort of a problem in police training in the, uh, as it exists today is that, let's take the Parkland High School shooting, for example. Almost every police officer goes through firearms training simulator training where they stand in front of a video screen and in, in, and deal with scenarios in front of them or they'll go and they'll practice in schools with paintball and plastic bullets and that but but in none of those scenarios is the officer really at risk of dying or getting hurt you take the officer at parkland high school or we can all be very critical of his actions but it's it's a huge leap in in um in training and in being prepared for danger to go from standing in front of a firearms training simulator video to charging into a building where you know someone is going to town with a, a semi-automatic ar-15 rifle am i making sense i'm just not sure that we're doing a good enough job preparing our officers for real danger danger at that level it's one thing when you're making a traffic stop and everything happens right there right in front of you instantly it's another thing to have to charge headlong into a building where you might get killed yeah and i think the classically stress is a result of lack of control and in those situations they the unknown uh they haven't been in that situation before they is to your point they haven't been trained uh, to the level of, let's say, uh, some of the training you received and others received in, while in the service. Uh, well, so. even then, you know, I never actually was in combat. Right. Um, now, many of the many of the veterans who were returning from overseas, the war on terror over the last 17, 18 years now, um, you know, a lot of them have been exposed to great levels of personal danger. So they probably have the fortitude internally already to face down danger uh, and, and know how they're going to respond and react. I think in many cases they make, the, they make good law enforcement officers. It's always been a natural transition from the military to the law enforcement and security world. It just sort of is a natural fit. You have skills, talents that, that are, are applicable uh, in, in the law enforcement and security professions. Right. You talked about the satisfaction with fugitive apprehension. Uh, what was the frustrating part? Well, I think it's probably the same in every job where 
you have a vision for how things should be done, how things ought to be done. You're sure that you're right, and yet there are people above you who are are the, are the decision makers who don't see the same things the same way you do, and so your vision winds up not being implemented. Uh, to me, that was always a frustration. Um, and I guess that's applicable in probably just about every job. And that probably um, showed up later in your career when you were more involved in program, you know, design and execution and, and so forth, and a lot more oversight than you were earlier on, hands-on. Yeah, absolutely, and particularly in for the, this project I worked in Columbia, which came about as a result of some legislation passed in 2000 called Plan Columbia, you know, I got assigned the task of enhancing judicial and witness security in Colombia. So I went down there, I did very comprehensive assessments, I developed a game plan that I thought would be, that would work in the real world of their real world, not the world we want them to live in or think they should be in, but what would actually fly down there. <clears throat> and, I, and I came back with proposals, some of which were accepted, and some of which weren't. So, you know, that was kind of frustrating. But yeah, it's usually at the management level that those things happen because when you're just hands-on on the street, you just do the things that make things happen and you bring the body in and yeah. go back out looking for the next one. All right. Now, how about uh, as you look back at your career, uh, anything you would have done differently? Any major things you would have done or not done? Well, I would say this. Um, Getting along with people, your interpersonal relationships is very important to your job and career success. You can be the most talented, knowledgeable, and competent person in the world, but if you don't get along well with people, then you're not going to go as far up the ladder as you probably could. I felt that that was part of my shortcoming in my career early on. I just really thought that, you know, what you know and what you did would be what amounted uh, most, what counted most. But I came to find out the hard way that getting along with people is probably as important, if not more important, than getting along with people, being uh, getting along well with people, both your fellow employees and your superiors, is, is important in your career success. Never underestimate how important that is. Never overvalue your competence over the value of your relationships with your coworkers and uh, superiors. Yeah, that's, and again, we, we've interviewed probably 50 people now and we're, we've got ambitious goals. In relationship management, interpersonal skills, uh, both in an affirmative way, people saying that was what differentiated them from others doing the same job, or in your case, it, it's an area that, she is a look back, you know, it, it could have been done differently. So that's, that's I could have done things a little bit better. If I'd found a, a better balance between uh, competence and interpersonal relationships, um, I probably would have gone further up the ladder. Another thing I would say, certainly in uh, in law enforcement work, is you can have a tendency to get addicted to the work. 
looking for fugitives for me was a 24 seven, um, experience. And there were many times where I sacrificed the quality of my personal relationships because I was addicted to the thrill of the hunt. And I would say that this is probably one of those things that causes a lot of uh, problems uh, in relationships for, for many law enforcement officers. And you can boil it down to, to the job and the, the thrill of the hunt, the thrill of the mission is, is more important in your mind than, than your personal relationships. And then 30 years later, when you're reflecting, you're like, wow, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I thought that was more important working on a Sunday than spending time with the family. Right. And, and regardless of occupational group, uh, that's, that's a trend that we, we hear. And I've heard throughout my life that, you know, given one more day of, you know, life, would you want to spend that Sunday at work or would you rather spend it with family or, or doing things uh, outside of work? So, uh, so as you reflect, that's, that's good to know even now. Uh, how about on a 10-point scale, how would you rate your career as a whole? On a scale of 1 to 10, I would say 8. I mean, I don't want to you know, create the impression that I had a 10 life and a 10 career because I think those are few and far between. Um, so knock off a couple of points for the things that weren't as uh, wonderful as they could have been. And uh, I, I would have given it an eight. You know, now post-martial service, I did some of the more interesting work that I've done. You know, I, I went to Iraq two times as a, in a security advisor capacity. I went to Bosnia for a year in a security advisor capacity. So, you know, the satisfaction of my career wasn't just based on the U.S. Marshal Service. Now, the Marshal Service put me in a position to get this other work in Iraq and in Bosnia. But um, the work itself in Iraq and Bosnia was as rewarding as some of the work I did in the Marshal Service. And that was of the same type and nature of the work you had done? Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, helping set up the the, the judicial security and uh, helping them with uh, apprehension initiatives, or, or was it all programmatic, meaning you were working on a whiteboard and laying out plans and procedures? It was pretty much um, quite similar to the project they had in Colombia. The responsibility of which was to enhance the security posture of their judicial system. And uh, the things that generally work in one place also work in, a, in another. The, the problems are, are typically the same. Um, so in Iraq and in Bosnia, I spent a lot of time in the field assembling information and knowledge about what was really happening out there, just as I did in Colombia, and then coming back and putting together training programs that reflected their actual needs. For example, in Bosnia, I quickly determined that the biggest problem this agency had was at their leadership level, the leaders not buying into the 21st century model of doing business. So the first training courses I put on were for them. There were leadership and management courses designed to sort of get them to shift their views on things 
to be a little bit more in line with the contemporary approach. After I did that, then I was able to start putting on training courses for the uh, mid-level managers and some of the other employees on actual operational subjects such as protective services techniques. At first, it had to start out with the management, with the senior executives, and that had to come about only as a result of, um, of thorough assessments. You mentioned Clint Eastwood before. Uh, who's been your hero? Who, have you had one in the service or uh, in the agency or just in general? No, I guess like most kids, I uh, watched a lot of James Bond. And so, you know, that's who I would have wound up wanting to be when I grew up, if I could have. Um, no, you know, I, other than those couple of mentors, people that I was actually able to turn to um, for advice and you know, guidance and, and, and learning things, I pretty much wound up going through life based on... Uh, on, on my upbringing in the Bronx. Uh, growing up in the Bronx was uh, was uh, very conducive to um, acquiring street smarts, being able to read people, being able to read danger before it uh, launched itself upon you. And so I guess what I'm saying is that um, the things that I've learned, I learned in the military built on my street experiences in the Bronx, the things I learned in the martial service were being built upon the things that I learned in the military. For example, you know, the, the stuff that I learned from my squad leader in Hawaii became very useful decades later when I had this project in Columbia that, that had already been given to some of the stars of the agency. And they came back and, and they were like, I, I, we don't know what to do. There's not enough money in the world to to provide security down there. Well, that wasn't the mission. The mission was you have $9.59 million to spend in a quality way on enhancing security in Colombia. What are you going to do? Well, I came up with a program and actually won the Attorney General's Award in 2003 for it. But again, what, I, what I'm really trying to say is that the knowledge that helped me put that project together successfully was something that goes all the way back to my time in the Army, and even before that, you know, street experience in the Bronx. Well, it's all building blocks. So, yes, that's an excellent way of putting it. So this has been fascinating, Rudy. I, I really appreciate you spending the time with us, uh, and uh, thank you for your service. And uh, you're, you're, you're still doing a little consulting now, uh, I guess, but uh, enjoying retirement also. So... Uh, I do a little bit of consulting work for uh, one company down in Florida called Saberhawk International. It's run by a friend of mine. Okay. I occasionally get requests from friends who are still in the government who've been handed these projects and they need some help thinking their way through them. So I'll put together white papers for them. But I, I don't do it for money. I just do it because they're my friends and I want to see them succeed. Okay. All right. Well, if we if I need to talk to someone about any security issues, uh, you, you'll get the call. Okay, Rudy? Okay. Take care now. Bye.